Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on pedophilia, sexual assault, rape, and violence. Listener discretion is always advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode one, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1931 gothic horror film Dracula. It was written by Garrett Fort and Dudley Murphy and directed by Todd Browning. It stars Bella Lugosi, Dwight Fry, Helen Chandler, and Edward Van Sloan. The film is based on Irish writer Bram Stoker's 1897 novel by the same name and the 1924 stage play by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston. Oh, I'm going to the Balderstons tomorrow. (laughs) I'm so fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you guys, we are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it first. Are you still here? You are? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. So the box office potential of turning Bram Stoker's Dracula into a motion picture was recognized by almost everyone in the early days of film. In 1922, a little Dracula knockoff film entitled Nosferatu was made by German expressionist filmmaker F.W. Murnau. Bram Stoker had already passed on by this point, so his widow, Florence Balcombe, sued for plagiarism and copyright infringement. The courts decided in her favor, and it was ordered that all film prints be destroyed. Luckily, not all of them were, and it's still possible to watch Nosferatu today. Nosferatu was saved from extinction, however, other film producers weren't going to take their chances with plagiarism. So Carl Lemley Jr. of Universal Studios was already in a lot of debt due to the Great Depression, but he still legally acquired the novel's film rights, praying that box office return would make up for it. Already a huge hit on Broadway, the Dean Balderston Dracula play would become the blueprint as the production gained momentum. The screenwriters carefully studied the play as well as Murnau's Nosferatu for inspiration. Initially, Lemley Jr. was not at all interested in Hungarian stage and film actor Bela Lugosi, in spite of good reviews for his recent recent stage portrayal of the character Dracula. Lugosi, who was forced to flee his homeland due to the Hungarian Revolution of 1919, illegally made passage to the United States by traveling on a merchant ship headed to New Orleans. Huh, that's so wild. Yeah, sounds a little bit like Dracula, doesn't it? Oh, destiny. Yeah. (laughs) So Lugosi did not know much, if any, English and learned all of his stage lines phonetically for many years. If you'd like to learn more about Bela Lugosi, I highly suggest that you all check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast episode about him. It's linked in the show notes. Todd Browning, who was slated to direct, wasn't interested in Lugosi either. He wanted his good friend Lon Chaney to play Dracula. Chaney was a known character actor at the time and and is famous for portraying the titular role in The Phantom of the Opera and Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Unfortunately, Chaney passed away in August of 1930. With the untimely death of Chaney mere months before filming and against the grain of the studio, Lugosi petitioned for the role he felt he was born to play. He ultimately won the executives over, but it's speculated that it was only because he accepted a measly $500 per week salary for seven weeks of work. Even in the titular role, Lugosi was one of, if not the, 
lowest paid actor on set. Holy moly. That's super crazy. Yep. And it makes me kind of mad, but... Well... (laughs) We all remember him and nobody else in that film, so maybe Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry and Bela Lugosi really stand out in this film. Yeah, it's true. So according to numerous accounts, the production is alleged to have been a mostly disorganized affair, with Todd Browning leaving cinematographer Carl Freund to take over during much of the shoot, making Freund something of an uncredited director on the film. So the film's archaic special effects all came straight from the stage play. The use of toy bats and fog machines and a giant spider web are now seen as super campy and cliche. But we'll talk more about this at the end of the show, the whole part of Dracula being a cliche. When the film finally premiered at the Roxy Theater in New York City on February 12, 1931, newspapers reported that members of the audience fainted in shock at the horror on screen. Oh, dear. Within 48 hours of its opening, Dracula had sold 50,000 tickets, building a momentum that accumulated in a $700,000 profit, the largest of Universal's 1931 releases, including Frankenstein, which was released just a few months later. And we also have an episode on Frankenstein. Lots of stuff for you to check out in the show notes today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So... The film was generally well-received by critics. The New York Times called it, quote, the best of the many mystery films, (laughs) while Film Daily called the film, quote, splendid, and praised Lugosi's performance, remarking that he had created, quote, one of the most unique and powerful roles uh, of the screen. Boy, is that not true even today. I know. Today, 1931's Dracula is widely considered a necessary classic, not only of its day, but in the horror genre as as a whole. In the year 2000, it was finally selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Well, with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? I sure will. An English solicitor, Renfield, travels to Transylvania on Walpurgis Night to get some paperwork in order for Count Dracula, who has just purchased Carfax Abbey in London. On his way there, he is warned by the locals to stay away from the Count and his castle, as they believe that Dracula and his three wives are vampires. Unafraid of superstition, Renfield takes a perilous coach ride to the castle where he meets Dracula. At first, the Count seems charming and inviting, but soon Renfield is hypnotized and then bitten by the Count, becoming the vampire's slave. They go to London together, killing the entire crew of the ship that they travel on, and upon landing in London, Renfield is taken to the local sanitarium and treated for his outrageous behavior. Dracula escapes the boat unnoticed by the authorities, and a few nights later, Dracula is introduced to Mina Seward, the daughter of Dr. Seward, who has been treating Renfield at his sanitarium. He is also introduced to Lucy Western, Mina's best friend, and John Harker, Mina's fiancé. In this meeting, we learn that Carfax Abbey, Dracula's new property, neighbors Dr. Seward's home and sanitarium. Dracula is smitten by both Mina and Lucy, especially Mina, and the same night that the introductions are made, Dracula flies into Lucy's room in the form of a bat and drinks her blood, turning her into a vampire. Lucy is doomed to roam the English countryside and feed on small children. Meanwhile, Renfield undergoes treatments and begins talking to the doctors at the sanitarium about vampires, eating insects, drinking blood, and other topics of undead lore. Another doctor by the name of Van Helsing analyzes Renfield's blood and discovers that he is terrified of wolfsbane, used to scare off vampires. Van Helsing fears that Nosferatu is afoot and may be responsible for the strange killings and events happening around Carfax Abbey. Count Dracula makes his way to Mina, biting her one night while she sleeps. She calls upon Van Helsing for treatment as she starts to feel ill, and Van Helsing is introduced to Dracula in the Seward's home while tending to Mina. While Dracula speaks to Mina, 
Van Helsing notices that Dracula has no reflection in a mirror that sits close by. Van Helsing deduces that Dracula is the vampire they've been looking for. Dr. Seward, John, and Van Helsing set out to save Mina from Dracula, but it seems as though all is lost when Mina attacks John. Fortunately, she's stopped when Van Helsing and Dr. Seward rush to John's aid. A disturbed Mina is rushed away by her father and fiancé, but soon Dracula appears before Van Helsing. He explains that Mina now belongs to him, and they will be going back to Dracula's homeland to live together. Van Helsing wards off Dracula with a crucifix, and the vampire cowers away and leaves. However, religious symbols are not enough to keep Dracula away. That night, he comes to Mina and meets her in the parlor of her home. Dracula takes Mina to Carfax Abbey. Renfield follows close behind. Unbeknownst to Renfield, John and Van Helsing follow him to the Abbey. Renfield is horrifically killed by Dracula, thinking that he has betrayed him by leading John and Van Helsing to their meeting place. As the sun begins to rise, Dracula is forced to hide in his coffin, but this becomes his undoing. He is killed by Van Helsing after being impaled by a wooden stake through the heart, and Mina is returned to her normal human state. Wow, thank you so much, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You are welcome. So... The Bechtel test. No, it doesn't pass. <sighs> and let me tell you, I tried really, really hard to make it pass. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a scene where Briggs, who is the nurse, who has a name, right, is um, tending to Mina. Uh, and they're talking about, like, Wolfsbane and how she has to wear it on her neck. And, and Mina's like, oh, that's a filthy weed. I hate it. Whatever. <laughs> But then they immediately, within that conversation, start talking about John and Van Helsing and her father. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. Can't we just talk about weeds? Like, (laughs) come on now. (laughs) Jeez. But they don't. They talk about guys. And so it fails the test. Sorry, everyone. Ugh. But let's see what Nancy's dream team test has to offer. Yes. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Actually... Yes, it was. Impressive. There are a lot of female characters in this. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Nope. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? Good question. Yeah, we're going to talk more about what scholars have to say about the queer theories that surround the book and the film Dracula. So before we go on, I want to acknowledge Esther Muscovitz, who wrote Threat of Otherness in Bram Stoker's Dracula, because for me, it was a huge help in our research. You're going to hear a lot of stuff that's quoted from that article because it's too good. So definitely check it out and read it. It's in the show notes uh, so you can read it for yourself. All right. So let's talk about motherhood and the phallic mother in Dracula. So Lucy preys on children and only children in both the novel and in the movie. Lucy, to me, is a character that get, I feel like gets looked over a lot. Maybe not so much when you watch the Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola movie with Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of a lot of people like really like her in that movie, but I feel like for these earlier films, she doesn't get enough credit, and that's so unfortunate because I think that her character, her downfall, is so tragic and so interesting. And Mina's is important too, but when we look at this film uh, rather than the later films um it's really about like lucy's downfall and trying to keep mina from going down that road you know yeah yeah she lucy is the anti-mother she was never able to marry or have kids because she became a vampire and it's almost as if it's her curse like it's part of her curse as a vampire to take the lives of children rather than to give life. And keep in mind, the novel by Bram Stoker was published in 1897, which math is hard. So that was like, what, 34 years before the film? Yeah. 
Listen, if you guys were patrons when we talked about what our 100th episode was going to be, listen, that oh was... Oh, my God. Literally eight hours went by before I was like, wow, I do not know how to count. And I dirty deleted that post because I was so <laughs> I was so embarrassed that I could not count. You know what? Count. It's okay. Math is hard. And... But whatever. This isn't Ugh. a math podcast, so I guess True. it's fine. Anyway, True. so... <laughs> So the book came out in 1897, uh, so 34 years before the film. And so keep that in mind. Uh, according to Catherine Boyd in her article, Making Sense of Mina, Stoker's Vampirization of the Victorian Woman in Dracula, she mentions Lucy's place in the novel, and she says, quote, Lucy literally becomes an inverted vampiric version of the angel in the house when she tries to amass her own brood of children by luring them away from their homes. Lucy ultimately dies because there is no place for such a woman in the new modern world. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. Yes, and that new modern world being the Victorian age, right? Like the early the late 1800s, early 1900s. Now, this is interesting because there's also, uh, I don't know, it, it sort of works for Lucy to take the lives of children in the 1930s, though, as well. Like, it's if we look at her motherly metaphorical motivations for killing children, they are still relevant in 1931. So according to the article, The Impact of the Great Depression on Children and Adolescence, quote, in 1830, individuals 19 years of age and under, the U.S. Census Bureau's definition of children, constituted 56% of the country's population, okay, with a national median age of 16.7. In 1930, just a year before Dracula, children's proportion of the total population had declined to 38%, and the nation's median age rose to 264 the economic depression of the 1930s led many couples to have even fewer children, with unemployment rates rising. Many families that had been middle class during the 1920s slipped into poverty, contributing to rising incidents of hunger and malnutrition among children and adolescents. And the article continues to go on and they say that psych- psychological stress on adults resulted in domestic violence and child abuse. And we can also assume that possibly child death happened as well due to abuse. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wonder how many kids weren't even kept track of, really, or like how many babies were born that were never... Yeah, that were that were never counted by the Census Bureau. Yeah. Um, this article also talks about how a lot of kids ran away from home and they just disappeared. We're never seen again. And maybe they lived, but nobody knows ever what happened to them. So really we can theorize that she, Lucy, wouldn't have been able to have children anyway because she wouldn't have maybe been able to afford them. Or if she already did have children, this was maybe her way of having you know, vampiric children who would always be children and be there forever and always be her kids, like, forever and ever. Yeah, that is very true. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. And listen, for anyone who wants to make a comeback on how, but this story takes place in England, not the USA. Yeah, you're right, it does. But this (laughs) film was made in Hollywood. So it had, I assume, US audiences in mind. Yeah, I like that. I mean... It would make sense for them to make it relatable to their audience. So, but another thing though that is kind of interesting to me is like, (laughs) it seems as though Lucy takes on this like cautionary warning for women in the Great Depression. Like, in one sense, she's fascinated by Dracula and the way that he presents himself. Um, Like, she's very interested in him, obviously, and she's very charmed by him. And she becomes his victim entangled in his lifestyle and now she's doomed to be like lonely and unwedded and childless because she's undead so like during the great depression 
maybe like a decade beforehand, you had like the 20s and stuff. So you had like the big flapper movement and, you know, women were starting to branch out a little bit more and experience new fashions and lifestyles before the depression happened. And in a way, Lucy kind of represents what can happen if women stray too far and like explore the outer reaches. And I think that like a big part of the depression was kind of, I don't want to say like reeling women back in or like that it was a slap in the face to women, but in a lot of circumstances, it kind of was like, yes, you know, that same article talked about how uh, less and less people were getting married during that time, too, because they couldn't afford to have wives, basically. So, yeah, that is that it's pretty it's sad like you really think about what people went through in the 30s with the great depression in our country yeah it was very stressful (laughs) yes well and that's the thing like people were stressed and people were lashing out and that's why so many children were abused yeah dude Ugh. now let's sort of like go back to this whole motherhood thing because The whole idea of Dracula and Lucy's vampirism, I think, can be represented with the idea of the phallic mother in mind. Uh, We mentioned some of this in our episode about the xenomorphs and alien, but these creatures, vampires, can reproduce their own children, like, without using, like, their sexual, human sexual organs, basically. Mm -hmm. They bite humans with their phallic teeth. Oh, dang. And then the blood could represent like menstrual blood so vampires truly are i think one of the best examples of the phallic mother yeah you know what i did not even think about that until you said that like that that's incredible how that has like carried on throughout the generations and like how we ended up having that with alien and stuff too and it's amazing how it's in horror yeah like, horror specifically, like, has a lot of phallic mother symbols. Maybe because, well, I mean, I hate to say it, but, like, what does that say about, I don't want to, like, attack masculinity at all, but, like, what does that say about, like, sex and reproduction that, like, a phallic mother is that frightening? Mm. Because it's so aggressive. Or or the idea that, like, you don't need, there only needs to be, like, one individual, I guess, yeah. Individual to make another individual. Like, there doesn't need to be, like, any teamwork involved, you know? Right, because it just disrupts what we have been taught is the natural order of things. So, because it's so foreign, that's probably why it's so frightening to us, but. Yeah, you guys, let us know what you all think, too. Like, let us know on Instagram or email us. Like, we love, I love when you guys let us know what you think about all these different theories that we talk about on the show. So please let us know. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Okay, so let's talk about deviant sexual symbolism in Dracula. (laughs) Yes, let's talk about it. Oh, we're laughing now, but we won't in a minute. So, (laughs) according to C.F. Bentley's Freudian article, The Monster in the Bedroom, Sexual Symbolism in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Bentley traces incest between Dracula and his three sister-daughter wives. (laughs) 
Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, we mentioned motherhood and the phallic mother earlier. Well, Muscovitz suggests, quote, the vampire does not need a woman to give birth, and that is why he is a divine creature. In this sense, he is father and mother at the same time. Since he is also the lover of the victim, a very strange, strange, incestuous relationship can be disclosed. The act of incest is a cultural taboo, and as Freud notes, persons who obey the taboo have an ambivalent feeling toward what is affected by the taboo, unquote. Interesting, because it's like, it's almost like Dracula has handpicked his own family Mm -hmm. maybe like out of loneliness comes this need for companionship but it like he takes it to another level and it's it almost reminds me of like a cult leader like becoming the father figure but also a lover like you see that so often in cults and it's so icky um i am reminded of the family in near dark yeah yeah, and, but um, but it is a chosen family, just just like as you said, and that is something that has never gone away in the vampire lore. I think it also it definitely adds to the danger of the situation because when you have a group of people that are in such close proximity to one another, yes, there's bound to be like some pretty shady stuff going on. Well, yeah, and May, who is the daughter character, I guess, in that movie, she bites the little boy and he falls in love with her, but he has remained like the same, he's not the same age technically, but he appears to be like 12. And so he decides to prey on another 12-year-old, even though he is technically an adult. Which leads us into our next deviant sexual symbol, (laughs) pedophilia. Yeah, so Dracula visits Lucy and sucks her blood, right? And she's like asleep or unconscious. Either way, he has raped her, in my opinion. Yeah. And according to Esther Muscovitz, quote, the converted Lucy has a particular feature in her aberrant behavior, even compared to Dracula. It is learnt from the Westminster Gazette that Lucy seduces little children, although there is no explanation why she haunts only them, probably because she is a new vampire and does not have enough power. But taking vampirization's sexual nature into consideration, this suggests Lucy's inclination for pedophilia. Okay, so a couple things here. Yeah, like, I mean, I I personally disagree with this. I like looking at it as more of she's a, a mother, but I want to hear what your what your thoughts are. I guess like the definition of deviancy, it's not really the same as like having a sexual kink, but I feel like because of the way that like sexual deviant is used in our culture, we automatically assume that like it's a kink like BDSM or like that kind of thing. That's why I have completely moved fetishism into because we're going to talk about fetishism next. But I've completely moved that to a different category because yeah, I don't consider that a, a deviancy. Right. Exactly. So that was like, <laughs> I don't know. Hearing someone say that about Lucy is like kind of alarming, and I guess just the way that it's stated that like it's such a nonchalant thing, and that like pedophilia is its own um like section of. I don't know, kinkiness, it's like, ooh, it's too close for comfort, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I mean, it is, it is, a, it is deviant because you are hurting somebody without, you know, their consent, and it is, and it's just wrong, it's just, pedophilia is wrong and terrible and bad. 100%, and yeah. 125 <laughs> million percent. Yes. So, I, I personally don't agree with this, I think it's an interesting observation, and I can see, like, why we might come to that conclusion because of the sexual nature behind vampirism Mm -hmm. um but to me i never got that that feeling i've always felt like lucy was just super lonely and this was like her way of like have children were easy prey but they were also like a part it's like something that she was never able to have was children because she died before she got married yeah but um yeah again let us know what you guys think i know it's a tough topic but 
Yeah, it if is. If you can stomach it, let us know what you think. So uh, now let's move on to fetishism in Dracula. Um, so Esther Muscovitz says, fetishism is, use- is using the sexual connotation as a substitute for the sexual object. It can be a piece of clothing or any anatomical parts of the partner. Freud calls the fetish a substitute for the penis. In the case of vampires, the substitute element is blood. Blood becomes the exclusive object of sexuality. Hematophilia and hematodipsia are under the class of blood fetishism. The hematophilia has an erotic attraction to the taste, sight, or smell of blood. Hematodipsia is a stronger form of this fetish. People gain their whole sexual satisfaction from blood. That is, quote, what coitus is to the lover, the bite and the sucking is to the hematodipsia. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, real, real vampires. Yeah, yeah. That would be, like, the definition, yeah. This is so interesting to me for a lot of reasons because of how necessary blood is for sex between men and women in a more traditional sense. Right, Um, yeah. Like, in order for a man to achieve an erection, there has to be a lot of blood flow, obviously. And, like, this, it happens for women as well. Like, blood rushes to your sexual organs. So, are we, like, (laughs) like cutting out the middleman? Like, (laughs) this is (laughs) obvious. No, really, like, it's just speculation on my part, but if we're looking at it from a biological point of view, like, blood is the origin of life, and it's almost like sex in its purest form. Like, it holds our DNA and everything. It's so crazy, and yeah, it's necessary in order for life to continue, and it's also part of the birthing process, so, like, you have your biological perspective, but in a supernatural sense, blood is like magic. Like it makes everything happen. Yeah. Well, and there is such a thing as blood magic, is there not? Y- yes. Blood sex magic, to be precise. <laughs> so let's let's talk about masculinity and male dominance in Dracula. So to be honest, this was something I didn't really think about. Um, I don't really like the whole idea of alpha and beta males. Uh, I just don't ever go there when I'm like theorizing anything. But Billy Pratt wrote an article titled Beta Anxiety and the Vampiric Alpha in Dracula 1931. Uh, They say, quote, the unconfident beta male, Jonathan Harker, lives in a constant state of fear that he will be rendered worthless in his world to his woman, apt for disposal and replacement. The beta male fears the confident, experienced alpha male, Dracula. He fears a future where the attractive alpha may take fleeting interest in his woman, and he fears a past where his woman has experienced what it's like to be with a real man. While Mina can admit Dracula is quote-unquote romantic, she tells Lucy that she would rather prefer someone quote-unquote more normal, to which our adventurous single girl sarcastically sneers, like John, and innocent Mina doesn't pick up on the obvious sarcasm, and she agrees with Lucy, yes, like Jonathan, normal like Jonathan, stable like Jonathan, beta like Jonathan. In theory, on a social scale, beta males are the type of males who are more commonly associated with being like quirky and lovable and reliable and kind, and they never steal the spotlight from the alpha male. However, one can't help but also look at John Harker as someone who is trying to protect Mina from making her own decisions. Like, that quote kind of irks me a little bit because it's about, like, my woman, you know, yeah. I keep saying yep. like, but it's my woman and my, like, there's ownership. And I immediately think of like the nice guy. Oh, yeah. The quote unquote nice guy. Milady. Yeah. Like those oh. guys. <laughs> so the the type of uh, masculine energy that thinks that they're super nice and they think that they're beta, but they're they're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. I look at that and that theory of John being like a a wolf in sheep's clothing, because I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's we could argue that it's almost as bad as Dracula to be that way, because you are trying to fool someone into thinking that you're something that you actually are not. Right. And Jonathan in this film, like, never appears to be anything than what he is but he he's he seems to be a protector but it's almost like he's like doesn't want her to like mess up or like make a mistake or to just decide not to be with him you know what i right, mean right right yeah um joseph altnether wrote an article called women and feminism in dracula and he says, quote, while the male characters seem to be overly protective of their female counterparts, Lucy and Mina, it could simply be a chivalrous gesture. It could also emphasize male dominance, specifically with regard to the Count. He has a misogynist attitude towards women. Although he may not hate women, he does demonstrate that he sees them as lesser than men. The three sisters who remain in his castle are expected to follow his orders without question. Although most of the women that do his bidding are among the undead, the Count's actions provide some insight regarding the perception of women. They are expected to be subordinate. But, like, that's the same with John. John and Dr. Seward are sort of the same way. (laughs) Like, I read that quote and I'm like, yeah, like, that sounds a lot like them, too. Like, no, none of the men in this film seem to be, they're more worried for, like, the purity of their, of the women rather than, like, yeah, that's the vibe that I get from it. Yeah, there's also an article called Thirsty, the Women of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and in the article, there is a quote, and it is, Mina, the heroine of, St- of Stoker's story, is eventually spared from turning into a vampire by Dracula because of the quote-unquote good men that exist in the world, even though there may be monsters in it. Mina adheres to her gender role. Because of this fact, she is spared from a gruesome fate. Yeah, and listen, while researching this film... And the book, I noticed that much like when we reviewed Alien, no one could decide or agree on if this was like a feminist film, like with themes of empowerment or a film about female subjugation to the patriarchy. Like there was like equal amount of people feeling like it was feminist, like the book and film, and then an equal amount of people who were like, this is terrible. I see a lot of like both sides of a story. So I'm always very much in between <laughs> when it comes yeah. to things. Yeah. Um. So, Abby, like, what do you think? And dear listener, what do you think as well? Please let us know. But, Abby, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. So, it's almost like vampirism itself is a take on toxic white masculinity. And for literally, I originally said hundreds, but it's more like thousands of years, (laughs) white men have been, (laughs) yeah, they've been taking from women and minorities, like, literally bleeding them dry when it comes to sexuality, culture, and their own human dignity. And Dracula is just like a character or an embodiment of that concept. Or is he? Right. (laughs) Like, I found this article from a writer on WordPress called Congenitally Disturbed, And they shared a really interesting opinion about the role of Dracula, which is kind of like the opposite. So the author says, One of the major themes of Bram Stoker's Dracula is the triumph of the masculine over the feminine. This interpretation is not limited to the treatment of the characters. Even though the men, Van Helsing, Seward, um, Godalming, Morris, and Harker rescue the woman, Mina, from the clutches of another male, Count Dracula, their real triumph is over the feminine forces that he represents. Aha. So Dracula was written during the Victorian era when the feminine was represented as weak and irrational and requiring the control of the stable and rational masculine. The women, Lucy and Mina, fall victim to Dracula's magnetism. And the more feminine Lucy dies while Mina, with her quote-unquote man's brain, is rescued by her husband and male friends. However, the male versus female question in Dracula goes beyond this reading. 
So after the European Renaissance, the scientifically and militarily advanced Occident, or Western Europe, was seen as representing the masculine, while the mystical and backward Orient, Asia, and Eastern Europe was seen as feminine. Mm. Also note that magical powers and understanding of the supernatural are usually associated with women. In the light of these considerations, one sees that Dracula, more than Lucy and Mina, represents the feminine in the story. Hmm. He is a supernatural being as well as a native of Eastern Europe. In contrast, his main antagonists are all Western European males who defeat Dracula by the ultimate act of male dominance over the female, penetration. Of course, Dracula is penetrated by a stake through his heart, but the symbolic significance of the manner of his defeat cannot be missed, since Dracula is set in an age when ideal when the ideal female was passive and homebound, the defeat of a symbolic female like Dracula, who dared to be aggressive and venture beyond his home, underlines the Victorian belief in the unchallenged superiority of the masculine. So the author of that article kind of took some pieces from the the book as well. So that might be why there's like a couple characters that are thrown in there that don't sound familiar because they're not in the film. But I just thought it was interesting that he kind of reversed the role of Dracula and like his whole perception of, I guess, gender? Yeah, I love that. That it's... actually changes a lot of my opinions about the film in a good way. Like, I really feel like I can look at this film with that, with that in mind. Because I didn't realize that that was, like, historically that the Western Europe and, like, Asia and Eastern Europe, like, were considered, like, masculine and feminine. That's really interesting. Isn't that kind of weird, though? Because, like, I also find it super interesting that the West, like, invaded the East. Yeah. They, like, went in and took whatever they wanted, and raped. that is seen... They raped the East. Yeah, and that is seen as a masculine thing, and that mm -hmm. is so sad to me that masculinity is associated with something like that, because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not. It's toxic masculinity, but... right. Oh, man, it just, it blows my mind that, like, gendering goes that far, so. Yeah, speaking of, like, gender and stuff, let's talk about, like, the theory of the quote-unquote other in Dracula. Mm. So there's a lot of queer theory and homosexual theory in Dracula. Uh, there are a few articles by film scholars about the homosexual history behind the creation of the book Dracula. So the following information I got from David J. Skull in his article, Something in the Blood, The Untold Story of Bram Stoker, and Kaya Gensis, I hope I said his name right, from the article Coming Out of the Coffin, as well as Talia Schaefer's A Wild Desire Took Me, The Homoerotic History of Dracula. So Stoker was a deeply private man. He had an almost sexless marriage with Florence. And he had an intense adoration for Walt Whitman, and he shared a lot of interests with Oscar Wilde, who was a very well-known openly gay writer. A lot of the homoerotic aspects of Dracula have led to the scholarly speculation that Bram Stoker was a repressed homosexual who used his fiction as sort of an outlet for his sexual frustrations. And in 1912, he actually demanded imprisonment of all homosexual authors in Britain, uh, including, I think, his friend Oscar Wilde. And it has been suggested that this was due to his self-loathing, but also like a disguise of his own vulnerability. Oh, that's painful. Yeah, it's very sad. Um, according to Vampires Are Us, the Gay and Lesbian Review by Richard Premuth, quote, the interwar period was a more hopeful time for gays and lesbians, especially in large cities, and this is reflected in the popular culture. The first openly gay films, Different from Others, which came out in 1919, and Madchen in Uniform, which came out the same year as Dracula in 1931, were produced in Weimar, Germany. 
but urban areas in the United States, such as Greenwich Village, were becoming known as, quote, bohemian enclaves, where homosexual relationships were at least tolerated. Harlem, while not as open as the village, was another oasis of expression in the 1920s, and actually it came to be known for drag balls that attracted thousands of people. So while these oasis thrived, the majority of the nation remained conservative in all matters, sexual, especially homosexual. And by the late 1930s, the social climate was changing even in places such as these. Vampires were also becoming more conspicuous in American popular culture in the 20s and 30s. Just as homosexuals seemed centered in specific areas, vampires were mostly limited to Hollywood films, and both groups were seen as spectacles by much of the public. Much of gay culture during this time was as flamboyant as as was 1931's Dracula, with his flowing cape, transfixing gaze, and heavy accent. So it very much connects with the times. Yeah, this also reminds me of that scene in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night of the trans woman dancing with the balloon. And, like, I obviously think that these have different meanings for different time periods, but it's interesting that the two are intertwined in a modern vampire film like its predecessors pretty much like the idea of these two communities being seen as like i don't know just creatures of the night because they can't express who they are in the day so the only time that they can be who they are is in the night yeah where the trans woman is dancing proudly with the balloon during the day Yes. Yeah. She's not in the dark. She's not hiding from anybody. She is clear as day. Like this is who I am. Yes. So oh, it's, I love it. Yeah. So there's some more queer theory here. Dracula appears to his brides as they are about to attack Renfield in the film, right? And he sort of like gestures for them to go away. He's like. <laughs> Yeah. In the book, he says, this man belongs to me, which is, you know, pretty telling in my opinion. Um, but in the film, he gives them like the, the go away hand, basically. <laughs> he pushes yes. them away from Renfield and then Dracula feeds on Renfield. And Muscovitz suggests that this could be a representation of a homosexual relationship. And she says, quote, the character of the vampire definitely carries in itself the anxiety in respect to homosexuality. The act of blood sucking is a metaphor for coitus as the canine tooth penetrates into the orifice on the neck, unquote. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, in the book, he only preys on women. But in this film, Renfield is his slave and he is... You know, he is shown biting his neck. Yeah. So really, I mean, that means like there's this sort of bisexuality surrounding Dracula and vampirism, right? And I mean, Muscovitz talks about uh, bisexuals and vampires, and she says uh, vampires usually attack their victims regardless of their gender. However, the concept of bisexuality has largely been ignored in the history of sexuality. When it was beginning to be observed as a sexual identity, it challenged the binary epistemology of sexuality, and that is the gender structure of hetero and homosexuality. So like homosexuality, bisexuality triggers negative social reactions. Thus, bisexuals are outcasts and socially isolated. And not just from heterosexual communities, but also in homosexual communities as well, because they, bisexuals, have to cope with sort of a double marginality. Yeah. This is actually seen at the very beginning of the film, by the way. Like, Mm. the locals in Transylvania warn Renfield to be cautious because there are vampires in the castle. So Dracula is an outcast even among his own people. Yes. Yes. So... It's got, like, a double meaning there, for sure. Also, I can't help but feel that Lucy kind of goes along with this because she's kind of an outsider herself because she feels a connection to Dracula, like, in the first place. Unlike Mina, she thinks he's handsome and she becomes his first victim, but 
at the time, she's also single and she has a little bit more freedom to explore. And, like, who's to say that she couldn't be bisexual also? There, there, I have seen theories where people think that she and, and Mina have a thing. Yeah, I mean, it could be reaching, but, like, we're also talking about vampires here. So <laughs> when we're discussing blood as, like, the source of sex and magic, I think it occurs to vampires that everyone has blood. Therefore, no one is off limits. Mm -hmm. And that could definitely be expressed through bisexuality. Like, if everyone has what you want or what you're seeking, then you can easily fall into love or lust with a man or woman, regardless of your own gender or however you identify. And it's all... <laughs> It's almost as if everyone becomes very sexy to you. Like, to quote Deacon from What We Do in the Shadows, when you are a vampire, you become very sexy. So, there. Okay, so our final thought. The vampire pop culture myth. Is Dracula 1931 a cliche? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> So, according to C.D. Calderon in their article, In Retrospect, Dracula 1931, quote, By now, the figure of Count Dracula has passed way beyond familiarity. The idea of a Transylvanian king of vampires has reached the point where archetype has become cliché. If the current expression of the vampire myth in pop culture means anything, it is that we have ceased to take it seriously and treat it more as a, either like a fashion statement or a joke. This is a mistake. Oh, no. <laughs> it is possible moviegoers have just forgotten what it means to be scared. C.D. Calderon says that, you know, Dracula 1931 takes a more sophisticated approach to delivering chills to patrons. And I absolutely agree with this because if you watch like Red Letter Media, they have a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. uh, Jay Bauman, uh, who's one of the guys that's on the show, he talks about how there's a difference between being like startled and horror. Yeah. Like jump scares and all that stuff like that's not horror that's just being startled yeah but horror is sticky it stays with you and it never goes away and that's exactly how i feel about this film because there are so many people who are like oh i'm dracula i want to suck your blood you know like there's that whole part of it but if you actually like watch the film you can really see, like, the atmosphere is so amazing in this film. You you feel creeped out. And I mean, like, yes, Dracula is very scary, but Dwight Fry as Renfield? Oh, my God. Nobody talks about him. I don't, I don't understand why, because he seriously stole that whole movie. Like, he oh, steals yeah. the show. He is frightening. And that, to me, is this this pure horror that just stays with you forever. And, uh, yeah, I think that uh, Calderon is, is right. Like, people who don't take older horror movies seriously, I think, just don't know what, it's, what it means to be scared at the movies anymore. Yeah, well, and it, it makes me think of, like, this current true crime trend and, like, how some people fawn over like handsome serial killers seriously well they're attractive because they're dangerous and also if anything i feel like you should be like more scared of i don't know i like i feel obviously i think that dracula is scary but i think that we've become so desensitized to what we see that we like we have learned not to fear what should actually be very frightful to us and I think as we evolve, maybe, like, our ability to decipher who is a threat and who isn't kind of gets lost. Because we're, I mean, we're so oversaturated with murder and death that we've learned not to be afraid of it. And it's sort of like, I don't want to say it's a fetish, but it kind of is, you know? like I think for some people, definitely. Yeah. I think it can be fetishized by some people. Like... I think that that's a really good point. I think that there is like you and I both love true crime. There oh, is yeah. like this I don't want to I don't want to say it's a phase because I think like people who have loved true crime from 
the beginning, really. I mean, like, the Victorians loved murder and true crime and stuff. Well, I think we have podcasting to thank for a lot of people really being into true crime. I mean, before that, it was shows like Forensic Files and, like, CSI and that kind of thing. But uh, there's such an uprising of people who want to talk about it. Because it's interesting. It's human behavior. Right. But I think that when we look at... When we look at fictional horror, like Dracula, you, I think you're right. Like, we, we're so desensitized even to the real stuff that even to the fictional stuff, like, we can't... How can... If the real stuff isn't scary, why would the fake stuff be scary, I, I guess? I definitely see that. But I wonder if... I don't know. I just feel like monsters and demons and that is all so ingrained in our folklore that you would think that they would sort of be one in the same almost because they're all sort of a representation of the things that we fear in real life. So, yeah, I don't know. It makes me sad. It makes me sad when I hear people say that, like, movies like Hereditary aren't scary and that's a newer film, you know, but then I hear horror people they don't want to even watch the original, like, Universal films yeah. because they're like, I don't like watching black and white films, and I just want to throw up when I hear that. <laughs> Seriously. You want that is... swine! <laughs> but really, like, that is one of the things that bother. One of the things that bothers me the most is that people, people who love film who don't want to see the history, don't want to see where film has come from. Yeah. It's very juvenile. Like, yeah, it's like a teenager who doesn't want to sit through history class because they think that history is boring. Some of it is. Yeah. But like there are major things that you should know about that are the root of a lot of culture and a lot of writing and, you know, fantasy and stuff like that. Like you should know that stuff, I think. Anyway. Well, and listen, we just did over an hour's worth of podcasting about a hour-long black and white 1930s horror film. Yeah. So to say that there is, like, no depth or meaning or, like, that something isn't frightening or scary, I don't know, maybe consider taking a second look at it? Right. Maybe opening your mind a little bit and not, you know. And so, like I said, I don't want to be too judgmental towards people who love film or people who are horror fans who don't want to watch the originals, but... I don't think that they realize what they are missing yes. by not seeing these films because not only are they going to get a lot out of them socially, but they're going to learn maybe something about themselves and about maybe the more modern horror films that they like, that they enjoy. Like, I just watched the movie 13 Women, which was from the 1930s. I might have been about 1932, so around the time Dracula came out. And I immediately, when I watched that, I thought, oh my god, this is the house on Sorority Row. Yeah. Like, this is Pretty Little Liars. Like, this is where all of that came from, came from this 1930s film Mm -hmm. called 13 Women. And I could not, I was shocked that I had not heard of this film before. I, I read an article where somebody had mentioned how it was such an underrated slasher film. And I was like, a slasher film from the 30s? And I was like, oh dang, I have to watch this. Wow. And I rented it on Amazon, and I tell you, I mean, I saw so many movies, modern movies, in that one tiny film, and I was blown away by it. And so, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't think older movies are worth looking at, I I feel like you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're wrong, because there's so much that you can learn from seeing where, you know, films started. So Yeah. Well, and not only the film, but the culture at the time. Like, sometimes in order to understand what's happening now, you have to go back through history and kind of, like, look at what was going on back then. Sometimes you find answers to things. So, yeah, I totally agree. Watch old horror movies. Can I get that on a button, please? Thank you very much. (laughs) Let's make that. Yeah, we'll have to make that. All right. Well, you guys, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and so much more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and just click that shirt icon and you'll be taken right to our shop. 
And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We'll sometimes review horror trailers over there and TV shows and new movies, so become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.